It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 176, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Jan Libby raises three acres of vegetables with her husband, Tim Landgraf, at One Step at a Time Gardens in north central Iowa. With sales through their CSA and the North Iowa Fresh Food Hub, the Market Farm makes up one of multiple streams of income that include cash rent and CRP income on their 132-acre farm. We dig into how Jan and Tim have made One Step at a Time Gardens work in North rural Iowa with an emphasis on their marketing efforts. Jan shares the story of growing the market farm operation and then choosing to shrink it again as the business matured. We discuss how they've chosen their investments on the farm so that they are mechanizing where it counts. And we take a deep dive into their carrot production and the crop rotation that they follow on their Hareley farm, as well as the landscape and habitat restoration efforts that Tim and Jan have made over the years and how those fit into the life and economy of the farm. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Local Food Marketplace, helping farms and food hubs around North America implement easy-to-use online ordering systems that integrate with a full management system for order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Contact localfoodmarketplace.com to learn more. And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com. Jan Libby, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Chris, it's so good to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start off by having you tell us about One Step at a Time Gardens. Where are you guys located how much are you guys growing? How are you marketing that? Sure. So we are in Southern Hancock County in North Central Iowa, and we are in Twin Lakes Township. Actually, if you want to back up a minute, the reason we got onto this piece of land is because of the natural glacial lake that I am actually looking across the field to. That was the big draw about the farm. We didn't come because it was a piece of ground we wanted to farm. We came because we were looking for some land with some quality habitat. And we moved onto this ground when we purchased it in probably 1989, all right? So in terms of the local food system movement in Iowa, that was way early. We really weren't talking about the local food stuff at that time. It wasn't on our radar. I didn't grow up farming. We were just looking for some ground and, you know, one thing ended up leading to another. And here we are in our 23rd season of direct marketing fresh produce. So it's been quite a journey. The farm is about 132 acres. We farmed at the peak on probably about eight or nine acres. We cash rent out about 55. We have, I don't know, somewhere like 35 acres in CRP and other buildings and grounds and pasture and things like that. So trying to really keep true to what drew us here was trying to work on continuing to develop the habitat on the farm in conjunction to our practices and then also working with some neighbors who had long time been renting this and they continued to rent with that and work with us on our our farming practices. So that's a real quick snapshot. In North Central Iowa, it's very, very flat in some areas. And the unique features on our farm is that we are right in the middle of some lateral moraine. That's The lake is a, a glacial lake carved out by the glacier, what, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, 14,000 years ago. And as that glacier was sort of 
retreating and progressing, it sort of dumped some rolly hills, and that's right where we are, which makes it kind of fascinating in the first place and a little bit somewhat challenging for farming, but it also gives us some little micro zones that we're working with as well. Right. Your farm's not laid out the way that I would expect a standard Iowa agricultural scene to look with just endless rows on flat ground. So many times I look at people's farms and I think, you know, where I could stand in one place and look over everything we have at one time, sometimes I've been really jealous and wish we could do that. But we we have one section of the garden in one little stretch we call the alley garden, which is kind of sandwiched between some woods behind our barn and a, a big windbreak. And then we have another section of the gardens on the other side of that, sandwiched again between that windbreak and another windbreak. Then we have another section of the garden in a south field from there. And we're sort of working from the hilltop where we finally found level enough ground to put up some high tunnels and then kind of worked down the hill from there. And then because it was a hill, we were running into some erosion problems. So where we had tried some contour, we finally decided, no, that's not working. We're just not going to be growing on that particular piece of ground. And so we sort of, you know, kept looking for pieces and areas that worked for us. So there's so kind of a, a bit of a patchwork around there. And I think one of the advantages to us is that it does have all this habitat between us. So I think that in terms of like the pollinator issue, I think that's a benefit to us. In our situation, as I said, it does create some microclimates, and in some cases, that's good. In some cases, that's like, oh, this is an area when it gets really still, it gets really hot. This is not really good for peas, but peas are in the rotation, and they get here anyway. Oh, well, we'll deal with it. (laughs) So how many acres are you guys actually farming in vegetables now? You said you maxed out at about eight or nine. Are you doing less than that these days? We are, right. We are somewhere between, we're probably around three acres, something along those lines. And um, you asked a little bit about markets. So we've always done uh, direct marketing. We started way, way, way long ago, just with very small efforts at farmer's markets when we got our start in 1994. And then ran across a report about community-supported agriculture on Iowa public television show called Market to Market, which we continue to watch every Friday night if we're available. And we said, huh, CSA, that makes a lot of sense. And we learned a little bit more about that. And there was a project in Iowa that hosted the first Iowa CSA conference in 1996 when we went to that and we said, huh, this really does make sense. So we started our teeny tiny little effort of CSA in 1996. You know, my husband, Tim, um, had off-farm employment full-time. He's uh, by training a metallurgical engineer. And it, it was really putting his engineering skills together with my education, organizing, marketing, not so much background, but sort of a penchant for that. And together that this farm created a great synergy for us to work together, which was one of our long-term goals when we first got married. So at the beginning, however, he was primarily focused on that off-farm work. So we did a few here. We did a few there after, let's see, that was 96. By 2002, six years later, we sort of said, well, something's got to give you or the farm, and we decided it would be the off-farm job. And it didn't look like the whole local food thing was going to die away. And in fact, we've all walked through those last 
years and we don't feel that that's going to die away yet. So we said with a leap of faith, we're going to let go of all the security that comes with off-farm employment and try to grow uh, what we were doing. This was a pretty early stage of CSA in North Iowa as well as across the state. So we felt the market was not mature enough here. We looked at uh, central Iowa and ended up deciding that we would be marketing into the Des Moines area as well as North Iowa. So when we were at our peak of about eight or nine acres, we probably had up to 125 members at the peak. And that's just full members. And when you do the calculation for every other week shares and this sort of thing, you know, you're you're some fraction over that 125 or so. And we were doing some farmers markets at the same time. So sometimes we look back on those years and say, oh my gosh, I just get tired thinking of everything that we were doing. We're now kind of working on downsizing. Um, we stopped going to Des Moines in 2014. And about half our membership was in Des Moines and half up here. We had been doing a little bit of wholesale to Weedsfield Grocery Store in Ames, but a small, tiny little effort called North Iowa Fresh was starting to gain some traction. And we thought, well, between the possibilities of that and just continuing our membership and then some other local food work that I had gotten into, that would probably be enough to kind of keep things going. And so that's kind of where we've been holding for the last several years. And that's why we are down from that larger production scope to where we are now. And is the farm providing a full-time living for you and Tim? Well, you have to understand that we have several streams of income. We do have some land that we cash rent. We are getting some income off of the CRP acres and then the farm itself and then the income that I'm getting from the work that I'm doing with uh, Healthy Harvest of North Iowa. So we put all of that together and those are our primary income streams. Okay. Great. Like a lot of farms, really, it's not just about the vegetables. It's about everything that you're doing. And in many cases, it takes all those different threads and it both provides us a little bit of risk management, you might say, right, by having several different threads. But on the other hand, it also utilizes the range of skills that we have and the things that we care about and the things that we feel that we can make a contribution to the local food movement, not just as farmers, but as sort of organizers and moving the needle from that side as well. What does the local food movement look like in North Central Iowa? I mean, I've I've never been to your farm, but I've driven through Mason City a number of times. It doesn't strike me as being a local food haven. Well, I think that there's been a lot of progress made in terms of awareness and engagement and participation in the last, particularly the last five years, I think. The work that we've done through Healthy Harvest of North Iowa, we've gotten a couple of larger grants around farmer's market promotion. We've been bringing the farmer's markets together, and I can't take direct credit for that. It's some of our other staff that are working on this, but I certainly have been part of the planning and the thinking and the strategizing. For a while, I think Healthy Harvest sort of felt the farmer's market's they're okay. They have organizing going on. The vendors are, you know, mostly they were vendor driven. And we wanted to start some conversation around collaborative marketing among growers to reach into some new market opportunities. And that's kind of where this North Iowa Fresh 
effort got started. And that, uh, boy, we had a workshop back in 2012 where we started that conversation. Then we got a grant, I don't know, 2013 that started a little bit more serious conversation. And North Iowa Fresh formed in 2014. You know, so that's starting to move along. And then we start to look at our farmers markets a little bit more closely and say, uh, they aren't doing so well. We really need to give them some support. So we had some resources from these grants and started to work with the communities and really kind of shift from just vendor-driven to try to build more of a community-based model of leadership and planning and promotion for the farmer's markets. And, I mean, we're still working at it. And Clear Lake is is the biggest hub because of the culture of that community, that that's got a really strong Saturday farmer's market, but I think it's made some difference in the communities. Forest City Market, uh, one of our staff was just there last night with some national farmer's market promotion stuff, and they were telling me this morning, boy, this market is is really doing quite well. And that's a little market that was really hurting until just a couple of years ago, and we have some great partners in that community, and they step forward. So there's, there's hot spots. There's greater collaboration. There's greater awareness. And then when you're kind of in the center of it, you feel like, yes, yes, we're really are making some progress. If you step back a little bit, it's like, okay, it's still quite a, quite a challenge, partly because of the demographics in our area. Uh, we don't have such dense population. We have older population and uh, trying to really get to that point of people prioritizing local food and really actively seeking it out throughout the year. I think we're still working on that. More recently, we've been starting to be engaged with some conversations with the local meat producers and uh, stepping into some of those conversations around the marketing challenges for meat. So we just started in partnership with uh, Cerro Gordo County Public Health to open up a farm to school planning grant. So we're using some of the initial community work that we're doing, be that a farm to fork dinner, be that farmer's market work. And then, for example, in Hampton and in Mason City, building in towards some farm to school engagement, pulling in North Iowa Fresh in terms of food hub and getting food to them. So I think those steps, I think maybe we're planting some seeds and we can see some places where they're going to be setting some roots deeper and we're going to be engaging bigger institutions such as schools, when you get into that, I think we're starting to to get a little bit of a different presence in the community as well. So it doesn't look like it on the surface, but I think when you are involved, you get a sense that, yeah, we those kinds of partnerships that have been developing over the last number of years are starting to make a difference. Tell me a little bit more about North Iowa Fresh. You've mentioned that a couple of times. What exactly is that? North Iowa Fresh is a small independent producer business, an LLC, and they are right now about 13 or 14 producers from across North Iowa, anywhere as far west as where we are in terms of this geographics. In Hancock County, we have a grower down south of us in Wright County, and then our producers go all the way over to um, Floyd County. Uh, maybe Howard County, I'm not sure. And that's over in the Charles City area. And that's like an hour, an hour and a half from our farm. So we got these growers. They're spread across the big area. And we've been fortunate to work with a nonprofit called One Vision that serves adults with disabilities. 
but because of some change in circumstances in their operation, they had a certified kitchen, they had coolers, they had big space, and they were looking for some jobs. And we started working with them as our aggregation center. So the producers are delivering product to One Vision, and we've got a couple of their clients who are helping to do the final food preparation, bagging, and so forth. And we started just doing wholesale to grocery stores and restaurants. And this year are piloting a food box program aimed at work sites. So in addition to the wholesale, they are also preparing products for the food box. And on Wednesday, well, I think on Tuesdays, they're packing those boxes. And on Wednesday morning, the truck goes out and makes deliveries on a loop that includes both the wholesale accounts as well as the food box accounts. And it's a steep learning curve and it's, uh, you know, this is a very tight margin business, as you well know. So uh, there's nothing guaranteed. Again, we feel like we're making progress and there's a lot of relationships that have developed with that, including a couple of restaurants that have opened just last year that really wanted to focus as a farm to fork restaurant. So that's been key for them to work with North Iowa Fresh. And now as we have some schools starting to explore, you know, local food and procurement and getting it onto the menu, uh, that food hub is pretty important in that conversation. So we're getting to weave this fabric that it's great, but it also creates some vulnerabilities because if one of those partners uh, has some disruption to their business, it's going to have a bigger ripple effect through the whole network of progress we feel we're making. And are you guys selling to North Iowa Fresh? Yes, we are founding members and we play a fairly significant role in uh, sort of management support. We're, we are not on the executive committee, but we've got a couple of grants that have provided some support. So Tim has been doing some of the financial management and and again, he's got some compensation through that. And I've done, at this point, because they're doing this food box program, we also have a role as sort of CSA consultants, providing some insights from the work that we've done on our farm and our, through our CSA over the years to help them develop their model and work through that. But we are founding members and we are selling through them as well. Are there specific crops that you're focusing on for selling at that wholesale scale? Yeah, and I mentioned that we had done some uh, sales to uh, Wheatsfield in Ames, and that really started because we were making trips down to Des Moines, and it wasn't much to stop off in Ames and drop off some items. So we started to expand some of our root crops, potatoes, our carrots, and you will remember that we had some discussion about well, would it be worth getting a barrel washer? And how can we look at that enterprise and really increase the efficiencies of that and uh, found that that barrel washer was a good deal for the carrots. It's also been a terrific deal for potatoes. Uh, We've also done quite a bit with winter squash. So we'd already had those items that we're doing sort of larger quantities for. And then we have found for North Iowa Fresh because we have a couple of high tunnels and we can get some greens in earlier, there aren't a whole lot of high tunnels among some of our other producers. So we've focused on some of those early crops. We've done quite a bit with kale and chard, 
some of the mixed greens early on. There seems to be a big demand for green peppers. Other growers are doing green peppers as well. I mean, this year, that's kind of been our focus. We've got a bunch of Chinese cabbage out there specifically for North Iowa Fresh and then our members. And then, as I mentioned earlier, before we actually got on today, that's where I was this afternoon as a weeding in our carrots. So I happened to notice as I was researching and getting ready for our conversation today that, that you're doing some kind of interesting things with your carrot germination. Can you tell us about your process for growing carrots? Sure. Um, I don't know how innovative this is. I think others are probably doing this as well. But we have found after planting them to lay out uh, burlap. And we just pin that down with some ground stakes. And if we don't hit the timing right that we get a rain on it, we'll put the sprinklers out and get that wetted down well and uh, try to watch that and catch that before they get too big and then pull that burlap off. And from there on, it's just trying to maintain and keep ahead of the weeds as they, you know, they've got to push through that teeny tiny stage where they're just as competitive uh, with the weeds as the weeds are. So, Chris, I don't know if you're referring to something else, but that's probably been the thing that's helped us the most. And we had terrific. I mean, some folks would certainly say in North Iowa, you guys have had way too much rain this spring and this summer. And I would say, yeah, in some cases we have. And but uh, it was been a tremendous boon for the carrots and every bed germinated quite well. And uh, we take off a little bit of time in July. And so our, our big game the last couple of years is try not to come back to just a complete mess in the carrots. And I wouldn't say we've done a great job, but this year we, we hit it pretty well. So we're going to get them cleaned up without too much work this year. And that's eight beds of carrots. They're about 250 foot long and we got three rows in each bed. So once they get harvested, the last couple of years, we've been harvesting about 4,000 or so pounds of carrots. And does that burlap, does that actually help with the weed suppression or is that strictly around helping with the germination? It's just helping with the germination. Yep. And of course, we're helping the carrots. Um, you know, we've gone through and done a little bit of stale bed work. And Tim felt like, you know, this year that was part of the strategy that seemed to work really well. We've done some stuff with the flame weeding, but he thinks that I burned too many carrots off. So he's a little hesitant to let me too loose with the flame weeder. <laughs> I think it's tricky. Uh, we all know um, Gary Guthrie, who is really the lead on carrot growing in the state of Iowa. He seemed to have that flame weed practice down. I haven't quite, but anyway, so we hit it well this year and we're pleased with that. And you mentioned the barrel washer for the carrots, and I think it's kind of interesting. At three acres of vegetables, you're in a you're in a funny scale of production there. You know, you're bigger than like the JM40A style that's become so popular that acre and a half or two acre model, where it's really pretty easy to manage with something like a BCS. But you're small enough that doing a lot of tractor work is probably a little bit large for you. But you also are downsizing from a larger operation. Tell me a little bit about your overall, how you're getting your work done out in your fields. Well, you know, as we've been scaling down, we've also been, and this is just like simplifying and, you know, working with a lot of other staff and employees is, is a complication. So simplifying to a certain extent is like, how thin can we go on our crew? And right now, last year in particular, and this year it's Tim and myself, and we have one gal who comes in. Uh, Mondays and Wednesdays, and then we happen to have the good fortune of a friend, Not they are farm members, so they work off some of their share, and then we pay them cash the rest of the way. 
and they kind of come as a gang. <laughs> so when we have big jobs, we say, hey, can you guys come out? So they come out sort of spot strategizing for us here and there, but they aren't scheduled on a regular basis. So for the most part, it's Tim and I and then uh, Becky who comes out, and that's been working really well. We have some mechanization that we have figured out works pretty well for us. So we do some tilling. We have a bed lifter that works terrifically with those carrots. It's just a dream. If we can get it right, we've used it on our garlic, and it worked great this year on our garlic. We're just talking now about our onions. They're kind of a weedy mess because of the spring rains and everything. And we said, well, it might be just as easy to see if we can't lift that and then just go in and pull that stuff up. We have a a potato planter that we got from a friend. Again, that was in the springtime. We're really not looking at adding a lot of extra crew. If we spend a lot of time hand planting potatoes, if we could automate that, that would allow Tim and I to do that pretty quickly. And that's been great and then a potato digger, and that helps to have some of that crew to come and follow up and do the final digging of the potatoes out once they're lifted out of the ground. So it's sort of a, a blending of some mechanization and figuring out where we really need that and figuring out where we need a bigger gang and then where the, you know, the smaller crew that we generally run with most of the time can, can manage. And it's been working pretty well and we've been enjoying, you know, everybody that we work with and that's worked out pretty well for everyone, I think. Tell me about how you're managing weeds on your farm. You mentioned that that's been a little bit of a challenge, especially with the wet spring that we had and, and frankly, wet summer that we've had in the Midwest as well. What kind of weed control strategies and tools are you using? Tim again does most of the tractor work. So we've got a cultivating tractor and he did quite a bit with that going through the carrots, focusing mostly on the pathways between the carrots. I did quite a bit of weed, a wheel hoe work, hand work through the carrots themselves and hit, was able to hit them at the right time. That certainly helped kind of keep them clean. He did a lot of cultivation and hilling with the potatoes, with the onions as well. And when we had too much rain and just couldn't get ahead of it, well, you know, things got weedy and We're just going to deal with it now. I can just think if we had anything that we just had to mow off. Another piece of strategy that we're using is simply part of our downscaling schedule. And that is that we've been doing um, what we call a spring share from mid-May through the end of June. And then we've been taking off from deliveries in July and then picking back up in August and finishing out the season. We started that maybe in 2015, 15, 16, 17, eight, yep, I think four years. And part of that was because we'd had a number of, of seasons that the rains and the weather were just making it really difficult to make the transition from the spring crops. We just were running into so much rain that we couldn't find that window of time to get the next sort of succession of plantings ready. So when we were moving in from the June into the July, we were running into a potential gap and strategy problem in there. And so in a manner, I would say we did some schedule work as a response to some of this volatile weather. Downsizing also allowed us to make greater use of our high tunnels. So in the springtime, when we're trying to get everything ready to start on this week, 
And if it's been too cold or too wet, and then we're really struggling to have enough, we could get everything we needed to really get going for the first deliveries in the high tunnel. And so that gave us more predictability and more control. Putting that break in July gave us several weeks to kind of get things back under control and get a good jump on the rest of the summer and the fall. Our members were generous enough to kind of stick with us when we took that break. The other piece of that July break is that we just wanted to get off the farm. And we love going to Colorado. Um, It was some family time that we could take advantage of. So the last four years, we've been able to take a week off of the farm in July. And we are, this is our first week back. We were gone for about 10 days. And fortunately, things are not terrifically out of control. Those carrots are the biggest concern in there, and they're pretty good. So I'd say it's some mechanization. It's a balance of tools that I use and that Tim uses. It's the schedule, and it's the size that we are at at this point that allows us to utilize our high tunnels in a new way. So it's sort of a whole a whole bunch of different little strategies that we're using. That's really great. I really like that it's not just one thing, and it's it seems like you guys have really given that a lot of thought. Well, it was really interesting when we made that change to drop Des Moines, which then allowed us to get everything we needed in the high tunnels. Then I just thought about it and said, oh, this is brilliant. This really helps to reduce that early season anxiety of we're just not going to have what we should have in the first box. And, you know, everybody's hungering for greens and they want that first box to look more like we don't want to just see two items in there. They want to see four, five, six, whatever. And so that just has worked really well. As you say, we are at kind of a unique size and it may not work for everybody, but you know, I think everybody looks at their systems, look at their assets, look at how things work and they sort of find those sweet spots. And those are a couple of sweet spots that have been working for us. That seems like something that's a really important theme in the work that you've done, not just on the farm, but off the farm is really evaluating and thinking about the assets and the resources that you have available and how to make the most use of those. Mm-hmm. I was off on a, to a meeting yesterday and traveling with a couple of other producers and this one gal was saying, oh, I think I'm talking too much. Oh, she says, you know, I believe somebody's asset is also, they're sort of like their Achilles heel. And I had to laugh because I'm a little bit of an overthinker. And sometimes that's a really great asset because I think of a lot of ideas. <laughs> But you asked Tim, sometimes my thinking gets us into trouble. But I think that's part of it is is looking at what we're doing, is thinking it through. And I love doing that. I love thinking about that and strategizing. And I think the holistic resource management study that we've done, which hasn't been extensive, but it just enough to sort of give me some of that framework. And we've both done a little bit of that work. I think we're both kind of strategic thinkers and he's a good systems planner. So again, those are the complement between the two of us and farming has been a really good fit. Something that seems, and you started here when you began talking about moving to the farm in 1990 before you were even really thinking about doing production there, was the importance of the habitat there. And can you talk a little bit about why that's so important to you and what you've done to manage habitat on your farm? So my background is I have a degree in fisheries and wildlife biology. And after college, Tim was already established in his job in Belmond, Iowa. 
And we were getting married and I was coming that way. And so what am I going to do? I started a job as the first naturalist starting the environmental education program for the Wright County Conservation Board. So spent about five years sort of figuring out what's this all about. I didn't really have a degree in environmental education, but there was a good strong organization in the state of Iowa, a good network of naturalists, a pretty strong program of environmental ed in the county conservation boards across the state. So I enjoyed working with that. And we started a family. Andrew was born in 89 and I stepped away from the county conservation board work at that time. And we started to look at a place out of town and said, okay, what's our criteria? Quality habitat, which in North central Iowa could be a challenge. So it took us about a year and then we got introduced to this farm and it was like, this is it. This is beautiful. It is probably one of the more beautiful locations in North central Iowa, in our humble opinion. I mean, we can't take any credit for it. It's here. I look straight south to East Twin Lake and there's a big ridge of trees directly south of us and there's a lake between us. There's a farm place to the east, but I can't see it. I can't see any other farm places from here. So we feel a little bit like we're in this little oasis. It's all public land across from us. So we're pretty conscientious about that's what drew us. And that's the neighborhood. That's the ecological neighborhood of this farm. But that was in, as I say, we moved here in 90. And so I started just musing on what can we do to sustain this farm and what can this farm do to sustain us? That was an early question when I was just dealing with very young child and then not too long there were two children and also wanting something that was going to engage my creative energies from the day-to-day tasks of raising young children and as I just mentioned being rather isolated because I'm a newcomer. I'm I'm an interloper. I didn't grow up in this area. I don't have family from this area. And anybody that knows rural Iowa knows, oh yeah, you have to live there about a generation or two before you sort of are on the inside. So I guess that took, you know, five to 10 years to feel like I started to develop some network along those lines. And um, looking at the whole landscape, the Rolly Hills, we have our friend who does the cash renting on the ground. Well, we run into some areas where it's always wet. Okay. If it's always wet, we're going to try to drain it. Okay. Well, let's do that a couple of years and look, it's still plugging up. Okay. This doesn't make sense. This piece wants to be a wetland. Okay. Well, there are some NRCS programs. Okay. We entered it in the CRP and sort of work on uh, returning that and restoring that as a wetland piece. That was the first piece. So there's, some wetland work, there was some drainage change, and the upland had to be planted to some kind of warm season grasses. Kind of early on in the whole warm season prairie restoration and in terms of our involvement, that it's mostly grasses, some flowers. Then there were some other areas of the farm. Again, it's either an odd spot that our farmer was sort of saying, you know, this is maybe a better thing to be putting in the CRP and it's pretty hilly. So maybe we should be looking at that. Okay. So we take another piece of ground and put it to that. Now we're kind of developing this connected network and there's a little bit more wetland restoration in it. There's a little bit more prairie restoration in it. The last piece we did was about a four and a half acre piece. And again, it was just because we've been changing the access for Gary 
it was another odd piece. And now the pollinator issue is kind of hot and heavy. And so we say, okay, let's try this as a pollinator habitat. So 2018 is the second full growing season for that. And it's taken off and it looks like it's doing really well. So that's pretty exciting to see that. We actually have some other ground that we had had in our own crops. So it's not eligible for the CRP program, but we don't need it because we're shrinking our production. And uh, we're looking at, well, now that we feel a little confident about putting that pollinator habitat in, we want to get that area prepared and get that in pollinator habitat. And Chris, this, uh, this loops back around to a whole nother topic, and that is what's going to happen to this farm when we reduce our farming further and when we step away. Our children are not living here. They are not going to take over the farm. We hosted interns for about 10 years, and that's a whole other layer, thinking that maybe somebody would really click. Maybe they would want to take this over and we would hand this off to them. That didn't happen. And as we've been reevaluating that conversation over the last several years, we said, what drew us here is the habitat. And it's such a natural fit with East Twin Lake and, the, as I said, this sort of ecological neighborhood that that's really where we're thinking in the long run is to try to continue to grow some of that habitat on this piece of ground and probably still have some cash rented, but we're probably going to see our own production continue to decline over the next couple of years as we start to make some shifts and, and prioritize our energies in some other directions. But it's a beautiful piece of north central Iowa and this is so dominated by the monoculture of corn and soy that this is something that we think is is important to try to maintain this diversity on this land. What do your neighbors think about what you're doing? I don't know if they have any strong opinions. We talked to Gary the most, probably, and uh, he's very sensitive to what his practices are and where the wind is coming and where our crops are and, and is great at coming over and strategizing with us. The other neighbor that is most adjacent to us in farming, this is another really interesting story because we moved here in 90, we got caught up in the whirlwind of the hog confinement debate in 93 and really got it to some crosshairs with our other neighbor um, because it was expansion of his hog operation into a confinement operation that our other neighbors got up into hoots with. And I mean, that's a long story because it really ended up into a lawsuit that went all the way to the Iowa Supreme Court. Unfortunately, it was the lawsuit that had to do with identifying that we really don't have local control. So we really didn't win by any means. But that relationship with the neighbor who is just to the east of us, pretty rocky for quite some time and it's actually an, another generation that's doing most of the farming. It's the son that's doing most of the farming now. And I wouldn't say we're chummy chummy, but at least we're talking to each other. And when he, when he is going to have some spraying done, he sends me a text. And if I have questions, he'll respond to me on that. So I feel like there's respect for what we're doing. And we don't have long, ex, long conversations. I hear people sometimes say, Oh, my neighbors look over the field and they think I'm just crazy. And they talk to us about it and yada, yada. And it's like, I don't have those conversations with our neighbors, and uh, I, I don't know. I think they think what we're doing is interesting, and I think they support us. Now, that is something interesting about your farm. You, you've got the cash rent operation going on there, so you've you've really surrounded yourself with 
somebody who you can trust to make sure that you're not having the drift issues that have become so common here in the upper Midwest now. Right. So we do have drift concerns to our neighbor to the east because sometimes he's doing it. Sometimes he's having the local elevator do it. And just because there's this historic relationship, we're a little bit more on edge. We do have all of this buffer zone in relation to some of the habitat that we have and some of just the fact that it goes from the farmhouse to the pasture to the lake. So directly south, we have nobody. That's a big drift potential. If someone was across the road, we would have all of that drift potential, but we don't because the lake is right across from us. And then we have, as you say, uh, Gary, that we have that pretty careful relationship with and are pretty, pretty trusting of what he's doing. That's really great. Again, it's this little little spot that we've been able to put ourselves in. Jan, with that, we're going to take a quick break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Jan Libby from One Step at a Time Gardens in Iowa. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is supported by Local Food Marketplace. Are you trying to scale up without the right systems? Instead of juggling email and text orders, spreadsheets for harvest, packing and delivery, and a separate invoicing system, Local Food Marketplace's software platform will help you automate these tasks and decrease errors with its fully integrated system for online orders, inventory management, order packing, invoicing, and payment processing. Easily configure the system for managing multiple sales channels, customer types, price levels, and delivery routes. The platform also offers lot number traceability and an option to collaboratively sell products with other producers. Contact them via their website, localfoodmarketplace.com, to schedule a free consultation on how Local Food Marketplace can help you efficiently manage customer orders from your packing house to your customer's doorstep. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. What if you didn't have to worry about weak transplants and poor germination due to less than great potting soil, or getting truly finished compost for your homemade blend, or making sure your employees remember to add the fertilizer charge? Oofta. What if you could grow plants until the, up until the roots filled the container without having to worry about supplying extra fertility? And what if your potting soil had your back consistently, year after year after year? That's what Vermont Compost Potting Soil can bring to you. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm. We grew great transplants with it. I mean really great transplants, year after year, without worry and with the confidence that I was truly setting my plants up for success. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com And we're back with Jan Libby from One Step at a Time Gardens in, in North Central Iowa. So... Jan, before we went on break, we were talking a little bit about drift issues. Are you guys enrolled in in whatever the Iowa's Department of Natural Resources has for a drift watch or sensitive crops registry? That's been a great resource, and uh, we double check with our neighbor that you know that they're referring to that. They confirm to us that they are watching that. So we really appreciate that program as a way to try to create a little bit more working together because it's an easy area to feel a lot of animosity and a lot of anxiety. Boy, I tell you, late July, early August can often be like a two, three solid weeks of aerial spraying. And that just really undoes me. I don't think we're seeing as much this year, but I certainly, and part of that has to do with the crop mix right beside us. But I heard some last week and I could, you know, it's to the south of us like, oh, I hate that. 
it's that bigger challenge we have of trying to find those pathways for the more conventional ag to live as a neighbor with these specialty crop operations that are all across Iowa. And we've heard too many stories about folks uh, that have gotten drifted and then really struggled to work through those circumstances and resolve that. And I've heard some really horrible stories and I've heard some more encouraging stories. So I sort of feel like there's been some progress made. And I think this system that is available through the DNR is terrifically important. Um, Practical Farmers of Iowa has also been doing an awful lot of work on that area. And they just came out with a really great guide and sort of informed by insights from producers who've had some experience with that drift. So I think there's been a lot of positive direction, but it still comes back to talking to your neighbor and uh, working with that as well. Now, you guys aren't certified organic, is that right? That is correct. So we make a pretty clear point to our customers that we use practices that would be consistent with organic standards, but we are not certified. So, you know, we talk about crop rotation, we make some of our own compost, we do some cover crop use, you know, we are direct marketing the most of our products. And with our CSA, we write weekly notes. And so it's like, we're always talking about what we're doing on the farm. We always invite people to the farm. Over the year, we've had numerous field days where we always invite our members out to come to the farm. So it's sort of that that transparency that serves to a certain extent as sort of member certified in a manner, but uh, have not found that that was going to make a critical difference in our marketing. To circle back a little bit more about the cash rent situation, because I think it is something, a lot of times the parcels of land that are available are large. You know, 130 acres is not a, is not a particularly large piece of land for Iowa. And sometimes it can be hard to find something that's a five or six acre homestead. And, and it does give you some advantages of having that extra control. But can you talk a little bit more about the relationship that you have with your tenant, Gary, and how that works? So this is a farm that was owned by a couple and the gentleman, Merle, was born and grew up here. So he has a long time history. He has passed away now. But, you know, he had farmed it but in the latter years because he was older. Gary was farming it and Gary is now in partnership with his son. And probably Gary must be upper 60s, 70s. I'm not sure exactly and uh, continuing to look at gradually transitioning to Kevin doing more of the growing. And we've worked with Gary since we started. And, you know, we were really almost comical. If you listen into our uh, contract negotiations, we sort of say, well, Gary, what do you think you should char- we should charge for rent? <laughs> and we need some of your ground, Gary, because we're going to use it for production. And then several years later, we say, okay, we're going to shrink down a little bit. And we're going to give you that back. A lot of just sharing back and forth. We don't do a lot outside of those negotiations and checking in with each other. Uh, In the last maybe six or so years, Tim got on as a trustee and Gary is a trustee. So those two work together in that capacity and and have opportunities to visit with each other as well. But it's an acquaintance neighbor that we're supportive of. And I think he's pretty supportive of us. And, you know, when we have questions about farming, Uh, He's happy to help us figure that out. We get 
you know, all the paperwork from the FSA and so forth. And it's all sort of code language to us sometimes. We say, Gary, what are we supposed to do with this? And so he helps us figure that out. So it's just a lot of common sense, trust and support between us. And, and that's worked out very well. And I think we've been very fair with each other over the years. And he is a conventional farmer, right? He is. He's a bit of a leader in our area in no-till. So that is part of one of the things that he has done a little differently. We've talked with him a little bit about cover crop. He's not terribly open to cover crop, and we haven't been belligerently pushing it. We're sort of looking for that window of opportunity when Kevin may be more involved in some of that decision-making where we think uh, we really want to step into that direction. And, And I think part of that is our own energy. There's so many things that we can wrestle with. Um, And as we start to shrink our own operation a little further in the coming years, I find myself ready to really work on that. It's like, okay, I want to see us really look at that cover crop strategy on our our land because we do have some rolling areas, even not super rolly, but in the ground that Gary is farming. And, you know, we have some real issues when we have heavy rains in the spring. So, that's probably an area that I'd like to see some progress made. And it's been Gary who's been really the one to sort of tip us off and say, hey, this is some ground. Why don't you think about putting that in CRP? And what do you think about that? And doing some of that problem solving together as well. So you mentioned cover crops, you know, as as something that you want to eventually incorporate into the cash rental program on your farm. But tell me about your own crop rotation and how you're managing that with your few acres there. Right. So Tim does most of that management. And for a while, he had kind of a, seems like it was like a 12-step crop rotation. And he had it all plotted out, which crops follow which crops and move those all around. Because as I say, we were more at eight or nine acres. And cover crops wasn't as big a, an issue back then. But probably in the last four or five years, we've tried to look at those windows of opportunity when we've got a field that was in a spring crop and it really wasn't slated for the next fall crop and it would be open for a while and in a time slot where we could get enough water on it to get that germinated. So we've found cover crops to be easier for us like this time of year to kind of get something in for late summer, early fall. We had some plots that we didn't need to put into production earlier this spring. So we put them into some buckwheat and I think we had some field peas and maybe some oats that we threw in there as well. And, you know, they've been mowed down a couple of times. They haven't been tilled up at this point. We have a fairly significant thistle problem on the farm. And so we've tried some sorghum sedan grass on that to only moderate success. So we've done a little bit with sorghum sedan. We've probably done most with those sort of mid-season quicker cover crops like the buckwheat and so forth and uh, we'll probably be getting some started here again but it's around vegetables and timing with them it's kind of tricky to get it in between your spring crops and your summer crops unless you happen to have a bed that's going to be open for a while so that's a whole nother strategy that i hope to continue to improve on our practices do you have ground that you're taking out of production for a year at a time and putting back in? We have historically not done that that much. We have historically used pretty much everything that we were growing on. You know, because we have a plot here and a plot there and a plot there, I haven't really pasted off to measure it. 
I would say when we say we've got about three acres in production, that probably includes some ground that's not being used real heavily right now or was available to have a cover crop grown in it. And I think if I was starting into this all over again, I would I would want to be a little more conscientious about having enough ground that some of it is in kind of a cover crop rotation in that. You know, we did to a certain extent because of the chickens, and we talked a little bit a moment ago about that operation, but they took some of our ground out of vegetable production. We put into clover, ran the chicken on them as part of our crop rotation. So that had been in the mix for quite a few years, less so the last year and really non-existent this year. And with with a relatively small acreage, but you talked about all these microclimates. I would think that crop rotation would be something that would be kind of hard to plan for. You mentioned the challenge of different pieces of ground with different microclimates, but also that this crop follows that crop. How much is your rotation kind of set in stone as far as how it's going to go versus how much flexibility and kind of on-the-fly planning do you do? Well, I I think there's the plan and there's the real thing. And the plan works as long as the circumstances will allow us to work. For example, if we have a field that we were planning to get the alliums into, the green onions and the onions planted early, but it happened to be an area that was a little low and we happen to have a lot of rain and we can't get in, then it's like, well, we're going to make an adjustment. And then we just have to sort of pay attention to, well, where are we going to put that? What was there last year? What does that allow us to do with what we yet, you know, it's going to steal somebody else's plot. Okay. So where is that crop going to go? And I think Tim is just sort of a, a fairly pragmatic person. (laughs) And he's like, well, we're just going to move it over here. (laughs) So as you say, uh, there's a plan and then there's that realistic flexibility. And then you just try to get yourself a little bit back into the flow that he has laid out of which crops he likes to have follow rich crops. And I don't have that all memorized, but that's why we have our pink book. Everything is in the pink book and it's kind of easy to keep track of because it's pink. And everything's in the pink book. That's where you're doing your record keeping, right? That's right. That's where we have our planting schedule. So we need to like, we've been on vacation and I really haven't looked at like, hmm, seems to me we probably should be planting something else here. We got to revisit the the schedule where that's got each one of the different beds that and plots that we have. And we have a map for each of those. So when we plant it, we log what's in there and keep track of that. And then on another sheet, when we're doing our harvesting, we keep track of all of our yield information and that then goes into spreadsheets in the computer and then that drives you know over average of well how do we decide how much we need of this crop or that crop well depends on how many shares we're doing and how many wholesale uh, production we think we need and therefore based on yield how much we need to plant of that so again um, that's a specialty of Tim's is lots of number crunching and keeping track of all of that information to guide our planting planning and the pink book. Everybody knows about the pink book on the farm. It has all the information we need. We talked earlier in our conversation about some of the investments that you made on the farm, particularly in mechanization. Again, the conversation started with the carrot washer. You mentioned some other items like a potato planter and a potato digger and things like that. How have you gone about making those sorts of investment decisions? Because it seems to me 
from our conversations over the years, Jan, that you guys don't just go, oh, carrot washer, I want one of those, and then go out and get it. It seems like it's a much more deliberative process for you. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the conversations we have is that we sort of self-invested at the beginning, right? People say if you're going to, Richard DeWild would like to say, if you're going to start farming, don't start a CSA. And I remember that, and it's like, ah, oh, ah, oh, how can you say that? That's what we're doing. I want to do that. <laughs> and I always bristled when he said that. But I think there's some wisdom to that because CSA is a pretty complex business. But, you know, we were too naive at that time to understand all of that. So it didn't stop us there. But people have to make decisions about how much investment, how much debt they want to carry and how they want to grow their business. And again, it's like so many other things. I think you have to think about that and you have to make the decision that is right for you and the people who are most involved in your farm planning. So one of our goals was to really not take on any debt. And the name of the farm has many layers of meaning, but one step at a time was also like where we want to go with this. We're going to sort of build it gradually so that we could keep up with the promises that we were making to our members and that we could also build and develop the systems that would help us to continue to grow the operation. And so we started with pretty low mechanization and then got a couple of smaller tractors. We did potatoes planting by hand, digging by hand for years and years. And I don't know where we came across the notion or, you know, if we saw it, we went to the Moses conference. You're always picking up great tips there. But we said, well, we've got a welder friend. We'll have him weld up and, and make us a bed lifter. We thought that would just be the cat's meow. Too many times I think we were feeling like we're stabbing this garlic. This is not helping matters. But he's really used to putting pieces together for heavier tractors. And we had too many seasons where the ground was too wet. We have fairly heavy soils. And we couldn't pull it with our smaller tractor. So a couple of years ago, we finally, here we are, okay, we've been doing this for, you know, 18 to 20 years. Uh, we finally invested in a 70 horsepower tractor. Oh, we just think this is wonderful. We love this. This power is terrific. And now we can use that bed lifter more reliably. And um, through Healthy Harvest, we had done um, some enterprise record work. And you were involved in that conversation. And you know, I was having other producers participate, but we were also taking that experiment and sort of saying, well, okay, so we don't really have a signature crop, but we were expanding our carrot production. So let's really see where our break-even point is. And I know we, you and I talked back and forth about, you know, take a look at that carrot washer. That really might, that really might help you. We picked up on the power washing from you, and that's still an important piece. So we have to sort of balance those two things together. But looking at those numbers gave us that opportunity to say, okay, that that is a place to invest. And at this point, we have enough income and resources, you know, that we could make those kinds of choices and investments. And as we say, we're not wildly uh, mechanized, but we've made some some choices that have really fit the direction that we want in terms of uh, the balance of labor and the crops that we are working on. So it's just part of the ongoing analysis of where are we wanting to take this and what do we want it to do for us in terms of 
the balance of the labor demands and the time it's going to take and managing from all those perspectives on the farm. And when you're getting ready to make a decision like that about the carrot, say about the carrot washer, that's a lot of data points to keep track of starting to look at how long does it take to wash carrots using our current carrot washing technique? How do you keep track? How do you decide what information you need to gather? And then how do you keep track of that? Well, when we were doing the enterprise budgets, it was part of um, a project with uh, Healthy Harvest. So Healthy Harvest is a nonprofit connecting and educating organization. And so we were doing workshops for producers and we really wanted producers to look more carefully at their various enterprises. You know, we were at the same time encouraging producers to think about moving into more wholesale markets. And so my theory was, we're asking you to move from just doing, a number of people were doing just farmer's markets, direct to consumer markets, and add or move into wholesale. And so you should be doing some enterprise budget development so that you can kind of assess the crops that you're selling and see if it's really making a difference and also give you that information to analyze your price point, to see if you can get the price you need at a wholesale market and and make all of those kinds of decisions. So part of that is just the ongoing education, working with other producers, educating ourselves while we're educating them. And we were um, participating in that. So we had like a whole season or so in which we set the process and we had the spreadsheets and the process and the data and the details that we needed to keep and that we were asking everybody else to keep. And then we brought everybody back together at the end of the season to sort of report out, well, what did you learn? That's a long season's worth. It's probably, you know, a nine month process. We weren't under a big crunch at that point to make that decision. So I would say not all of our decisions are we quite that deliberative about, but We tend to be fairly deliberative, which might mean that we don't make decisions very fast, which might drive some people really crazy. And again, it kind of fits the personalities. So right now we're at that point of talking about what are we going to do with this farm in the long range? And we've been sort of nibbling on that for several years. And we've gotten closer and closer to saying, when we anticipate that transition point. And and I've said we're pretty clear on the direction we're going is we're probably going to see ourselves let go of the CSA in the next couple of years. But maybe if, for example, North Iowa Fresh is still a viable market, we would still be thinking about growing for them. But it, it will give us a chance to let go of all that diversity of crops and all of the management challenges that come with managing so many different crops over over that time and also just let go of all of the um all of the communications and the people management that go with the CSA. So again, it's just sort of an example of I think taking time every year to sort of reevaluate what do we want to do next year, how do we want to do it and where do we want to make improvements and and changes and thinking that through. Um we're pretty busy with crops and deliveries till December, and then we start to dig into some of that planning for the next year, and that's where we get into some of those conversations. And sometimes it's just a simple change from, oh, we're going to change this kind of a share option, and it doesn't take us very long, or sometimes it's several years that we're sort of chewing on issues. Great. With that, Jan, we're going to turn here to our lightning round, but first we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. 
This lightning round is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, the flail mower, the power harrow, the rotary plow, the snow thrower, the log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor, and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors, and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time that I was using them thinking about how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Jan, what's your favorite tool on the farm? So if I had to choose, I would have a hard time choosing just one tool. But you're talking to me after we've been working with our carrots, and I use a little hand hoe. Uh, it's a Japanese, there's a fancy term to it, but it's a little Japanese hand hoe that I really like working with. So in those circumstances, I love that. Pretty soon we're going to be digging potatoes, and I absolutely love our barrel washer because it's so efficient with our potatoes. So sort of depends on the day that you ask me. But those things that can make work easy and fun are the things that I love. Oh, I have to tell you one more that I really love because this is so simple and so silly. I thought something like an apple picking bag should be utilized in picking tomatoes. But that bag was too big and we were going to squish tomatoes. We had some backpacks from our kids' school days that were no longer being used. And so I've turned a couple of backpacks into sort of sideways pouches that I strap on when I am harvesting tomatoes. And so it really allows me to go just down the hoop house pretty quickly and harvest those tomatoes. And it was really very inexpensive. So that's a pretty slick little tool. Nice. What would Tim say is your farming superpower? Oh, boy. I don't know exactly what he would say, but I think he might say the partnership between us, the balance of skills and energies that we bring to the work because we are such a good complement. But, boy, you have to ask him, and he's not just right behind me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And your favorite crop to grow? Again, I don't know if I have a favorite. I like this one for that, or I like this one for that. I like tomatoes because I like the intimate time when you're working with trellising the tomatoes and pruning them. Mostly I like that. I like the carrots because you get that carrot bed so beautiful and you just get to watch it once it's sort of canopied up. I love eggplant because I love eggplant. So I'm just not a single crop person, I don't think. Sort of, again, like, oh, depends on the circumstance. Depends on the day. So with the tomatoes, do you grow most of your tomatoes in the high tunnel or do you just do outdoor production with those as well? Nope, they're all in the high tunnel. We just were having way too much trouble with diseases on them and we would just get torrential rains at the wrong time and we said this is is not working. So again, that's utilizing those high tunnels and getting those sort of high value crops where we can help reduce the loss and that's been working pretty well. Do those tomatoes all go to your CSA or are some of those going through through the wholesale as well? Most of them are going to the CSA. We do some kits, uh, so larger quantities, a canning kit, a roasted tomato kit, because inevitably you're going to produce more than you really need for the box. You don't want to overwhelm them. And when we are in that peak of tomatoes, then and this was a tip from a farmer in Minnesota, I think, 
offer some kits, offer those opportunities for them to use larger quantities. So that's been a nice way for us to move tomatoes as well. And finally, Jan, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I don't know if I I can answer that directly like that, but sometimes people have asked me, what would you say to a beginning farmer, which is a little bit what you just asked me, but it's not my beginning farmer self. And when I think about that, I usually tell them, think about where you imagine your farm to be down the road and make sure you put enough ground into production so that you can balance some ground into some cover crops and really, you know, really pay attention to feeding that soil well so it's going to help produce good, healthy, you know, nutritionally dense uh, vegetables because that's the ground zero of growing food. We're not depending on chemicals. We're relying on beneficial pests, uh, beneficial insects and so forth to help us. Um, and obviously healthy soils help healthy food. So look at that whole picture and start big enough so that you have that flexibility. And I think lean on networks of other farmers and other supporters that can help you because this is way too big of a job to do just by yourself. Jan, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. You know, we all love this work. And so when we have an opportunity to talk about it, we love to talk about it. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again, that this is episode 176 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Libby. That's L-I-B-B-E-Y. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know that you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You want to support the show directly, you can go to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help right there. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.